Get on Team Shaq with WinBet. We're playing parlays, boosting odds, and laying the wildest prop bets. Don't miss another game. Download the WinBet sports betting app today. Sign up today and win $200 in free bets when you place a $10 first-time wager on a straight better parlay. Offer subject to change, terms and conditions at winbet.com. Must be 21 or older and present in the state where playthrough WinBet is available. If you or someone you know has a gambling problem, call 1-800-522-4700. Hello, 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 and welcome to Fitz on Fantasy. I'm Pat Fitzmorris. Find me on Twitter at Fitz underscore FF. I'm confused, so tell me, is this technically the offseason for fantasy football enthusiasts? Season-long leagues are done, but the NFL playoffs are going on. Uh, we're just coming off a very entertaining wildcard weekend. And a lot of people are doing playoff fantasy leagues. Uh, all right, I guess maybe we haven't hit the offseason yet officially. But I do think this is the perfect time of year to talk a little dynasty. I try my best to make this a full-service podcast catering to uh, devotees of season-long leagues and dynasty leagues. And I think that whenever I'm talking to my guests about individual players, there's often both a short-term and uh, bigger picture angle on things. So maybe uh, you know some of the conversation is applicable to both season-long and dynasty. And even if I call this a dynasty episode, I think that listeners who only play in season-long leagues are still going to get something out of it. So I hope if you're one of those people, you'll stick around for my conversation with Jordan McNamara. Jordan is a contributor to the Under the Helmet Dynasty site. He also does some work for football guys, and he has a dynasty strategy book coming out. Uh, I'm going to talk to him about that. And you can find Jordan on Twitter at McNamara Dynasty. I have to admit, I have only recently gotten into the Dynasty format. I was always strictly a redraft guy. In fact, I did not dip a toe into the Dynasty waters until 2018, just two years ago. But now I am in three Dynasty leagues. And in fact, I just won my first ever Dynasty League championship. I'm pretty proud of myself. And I'm really enjoying the elements of longer-term roster management. That's obviously one of the more appealing things about the Dynasty format. Uh, but you know what else is appealing about Dynasty to me? It is so much easier to trade in Dynasty Leagues than in redraft leagues. Trying to make trades in redraft leagues can be like slamming your head into a cinder block wall. Just such a pain in the ass. I find that in most of my redraft leagues, there are only like three or four guys in every league that I can even hope to trade with. Most of the other owners are just completely unreasonable, uh, just not willing to negotiate in good faith. But in dynasty leagues, for one, I think people tend to be a little more realistic in assessing the talent on their rosters. And also... There are times when you might be real close to a trade in a redraft league, but the deal being proposed is just 
ever so slightly out of balance. And in a redraft league, it might be hard to bring that deal into balance because there are really only so many ways you can tweak it. But in dynasty leagues, you can always add layers to a deal. Throw in a draft pick, throw in an aging veteran, throw in a raw but intriguing young player. There are always ways to bridge those little gaps that are the difference between getting a deal done and not getting a deal done. Um, I tend to view trading and redraft leagues as more of a necessary evil, but I really enjoy trying to cook up trades in dynasty leagues. So anyway, yes, I'm going to bring in Jordan McNamara in just a moment for some dynasty chit chat. But first, I just want to mention that I will be releasing my first set of fantasy rankings for the 2020 season, redraft rankings that is, very soon, hopefully this weekend in fact. But I have sort of a dilemma with that. So my initial rankings, my deep dive, includes incoming rookies. And some people will think that's stupid. How can you rank rookies when we don't know where they're going to be playing? Well, I mean, you could say the same thing about all the veteran players on the verge of becoming unrestricted free agents. We don't know where they're going to be. Look, part of this is that I'm a completist. I don't want these rankings to feel abbreviated or unfinished in any way. And I suppose that's why I've got, oh, about 200 wide receivers ranked at the moment. And I told you I'm a completist. But Fantasy Pros has this great rankings engine that most rankers use. It lets you shuffle players around in your rankings with minimal effort. It's really easy. And oh man, when Fantasy Pros first unveiled the rankings engine a few years ago, it was a godsend. I mean, I used to have to type out the names and the team names and cut and paste to move around. I mean, this made the process of doing rankings so much easier. I just wanted to go and hug the Fantasy Pros engineers. And Fantasy Pros already has it set up so that rankers can input their 2020 Fantasy Draft rankings. I mean, we are eight months before the kickoff of the 2020 regular season, and you can already get Fantasy Draft rankings. That's pretty awesome. But here's the thing. Fantasy Pros does not add the rookies until after the scouting combine, and that's still weeks away. So what I think I might do here, and I've been toying with this idea for a few days, I think I'm going to post two sets of rankings. One is going to be done using the Fantasy Pros rankings engine, and it will not include rookies. So that set of rankings will appear in the same format as my weekly rankings throughout the season, and you'll be able to compare my rankings to those of anyone else who's published a set of outrageously early rankings. If you just go to Fantasy Pros, uh, click on, I don't know, Juju Smith-Schuster and see how I rank him versus, you know, where Bobby Sylvester of Fantasy Pros has him, where Justin Boone has him. Um, but the other set, the second set that I am thinking about releasing, that will be the raw and uncut version of my rankings. These rankings are going to be deeper at every position. They'll include the rookies. They'll also designate the status of impending free agents, whether they're unrestricted or restricted. These 
rankings, these raw and uncut rankings, will be messy, but they will be fun. And uh, let's face it, I mean, rookies like Jonathan Taylor, DeAndre Swift, Travis Etienne, they're going to be taken as early as the second round, maybe even the first round in 2020 fantasy drafts. I mean, can you imagine the feeding frenzy if DeAndre Swift is drafted by the Kansas City Chiefs and is thrown into an Andy Reid-designed, Patrick Mahomes-triggered offense? I'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it. So, hey, I want to give you at least one set of rankings that includes the rookies, even if their individual rankings are just sort of placeholder rankings. All right, I've blathered on long enough about that. Let's get to our guest. Let's bring in Jordan McNamara. Joining me now is Jordan McNamara. He is a contributor at Under the Helmet Dynasty, which you can find at uthdynasty.com. And he is also the author of the forthcoming book, The Analytics of Dynasty 2020 Edition. Find him on Twitter at McNamara Dynasty. Jordan, great to have you here. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. I really appreciate joining you and it's going to be fun. Yeah, absolutely. So let's get right to it and talk about the book you have coming out. Uh, As I mentioned a minute ago, it's called The Analytics of Dynasty. What is the official release date for this? It's going to be January 18th. So the weekend of the, it's the Saturday of the AFC and NFC championship game. Oh, nice. All right. So uh, a lot of people write articles about Dynasty League strategy. What motivated you to write an entire book on it? Yeah, so this is so the 2020 editions. Actually, it's the the 2.0 edition. Uh, I wrote one in 2019, and it it all really like in the summer of in the well the spring of 2018. I was trying to do a whole bunch of DFS research and just come up with some different DFS ideas. I wanted to get more into DFS, and as I kept looking at the data, I just kept wondering, you know, well, a lot of this seems like it would be applicable to Dynasty, and I come from a Dynasty background, and I was sort of trying to make the jump into DFS, and I just I basically overlaid a lot of ADP and some different Dynasty ideas on the data I was looking at, and I just I just started writing, and just started writing and writing, and I just just to get my ideas down, and it just turned into like forty pages of just thoughts. And I was like, wow, I can really, I've got something here. And I I talked to a handful of friends and they were like, you should do it. And so I wrote it and ended up being about 150 pages. Um, And it was just, it just basically spawned out of a research project. And so the the first edition basically was a, a, an overview of dynasty. It did a lot of hit rates. And I always wondered when people said like, you know, a player is a good fifth round pick. Well, what's that mean? You know, what, what's that actually mean? Or, you know, what's a rookie pick actually worse? Those sorts of ideas. Um, and I, I came up with some different metrics and I, I created a, a wins over replacement similar to war for, uh, for baseball. And, and there's some work of trying to do that in, in real football. And um, so I created that. And then I also created a warp, which is adjusted wins over replacement, and it incorporates uh, starter rates and just tries to get a different uh, analysis of of player value. And so I took all that and I just plan on writing one book and it to be an evergreen version. Um, and then I just sort of had the itch again, and I just said, you know, I'm going to keep doing it. And so I wrote the 2020 edition. It has a big the first edition didn't really have much focus on superflex because I didn't have any historical superflex data because it's such a new 
game and it's such a new topic and there wasn't any really historical data going back. Um, fortunately, I was able to get some ADP going back five, I think five or six years now uh, with just, it's a small sample size, but I think it's instructive to, to really draw some conclusions and super flex and get some super flex value ideas. So I went ahead and I wrote the second edition and it focuses, it's a lot different in terms of the focus of it. And, you know, I think some of the questions we're going to talk about, it's, it actually tailored a lot to these type of questions. So it's, um, it's super flex and it's player hit rates and, um, something I call density looking at, you know, how dense once a player actually hits, how dense their hit is, um, and looking at how different players and and different types of players hit for productive seasons and fantasy production. Oh, interesting. And interesting that you mentioned these, uh, looking at ways to, I don't know, measure the expectation for a fifth rounder or, um, you know, the value of a rookie pick. And I think that's one of the interesting things about Dynasty as opposed to season long where, I don't know, season long is almost like day trading where you've got these, uh, you know, the the weekly variance is a big deal with players and everything. And I think that almost gets... I don't know, not uh, completely ignored by dynasty leaguers, but they're willing to live with that weekly variance a little more as as long as the the long-term investment is good. Like if season-long owners are the day traders, I think, uh, you know, dynasty owners are more the, uh, the, the people who are investing for retirement. You know, like they're looking, they're willing to take the, uh, live with the weekly variance as long as the overall return on investment is satisfying. Um but what I don't expect you to walk me through the table of contents or anything, Jordan, but uh, what elements of Dynasty does the book cover? What are some of the things you get into? What are the what are readers going to get out of it? Yeah. So actually, I think I think your point uh, just about the consistency is a, is a great thing. I, I always wondered about that. And it's funny because when I did the first edition, I did um, a lot of strategy sessions to go along with it. That was part of my pre-sale. And so I talked to dozens of subscribers and they had like all these questions. And it was like, it was all stuff that I thought about that I'd never really dove too far into. And so when I decided to write the second one, I said, let's try and address some of these things. And so that was a big one was like, what, what does consistency actually matter? You know, what's, what's a consistent team? Does that actually matter? And because I think people want their teams to be consistent um, and think that the team that actually helps a team's overall production. And so I went, I went and looked and I have a, I, I took a sample of, of some leagues that I found online that were just, you know, dynasty leagues. Um, and, and just, they were, consistent formats across the leagues. I had 52 uh, dynasty, 12 team dynasty leagues. So it was like 624 teams. And I was able to go through and like, look and see like how much consistency actually mattered. Um, And I found it doesn't really matter. And so, and I actually think it's really valuable if you, if you sort of embrace that variance and uh, you know, Brandon Cooks was a guy that I think wrongly um, coming into this year and it didn't, it didn't turn out well, but I think he's a good example of a player that was thought of to be boom bust. It just, this year didn't go great for him. But, um, Mike Evans is another example. Everyone's like, oh, his, his production happened in only a couple weeks, but you, you captured all of that, right? You captured all of his production and it, it tilted your, it tilted your game. And, you know, using warp and those sorts of, those sorts of metrics that I came up with, it, I found that it really doesn't, it doesn't, you know, his, his production concentrated in a couple of weeks doesn't really change your record and, you know, high variance teams don't really perform worse. Uh, there's no link between high variance teams and, and record. 
right? It's just, it's basically a random walk. And so I, I think there's a lot of value in that because people will think, you know, I want player X because he's consistent, but really the thing that you should be worried about and what, you know, 95% of what dictates your all play record or really your luck independent record is scoring points. And, you know, and I think we sort of get away from that. So looking, you know, uh, being okay with variance and high variance players, especially at the positions, you know, uh, wide receiver having, you know, wide receiver is a highly variant from week to week, but year over year, the guys are consistent, right? It's the same guys like Mike Evans is consistently a top 24 wide receiver. Um, you know, Jarvis Landry, like these guys are consistently uh, high end producers and, you know, DeAndre Hopkins, those types of players, they're, they're consistently high end, but it's a week to week variant sport. And so you just sort of have to deal with that, but you know, they're always going to be in your roster at running back variance is good. Like you want, you want variance, like a guy like Latavius Murray, you could plug in for a couple of weeks this year when Kamara was out and got, I mean, you, you almost improved your record by a half a win just by plugging Latavius Murray in over what a replacement player would have been. So, I'm okay with variance from week to week. Uh, I think it's actually it's, it has value uh, from a big picture, and that was one of the things that I, I wondered about and really wanted to get, dive into in the book. Yeah, so that's uh, like a lot of it is that looking at at value total and and how to assess value and helping people better understand their rosters and and just the general I don't know e- equivalent values of of draft picks and things like that. Yeah. And so another thing too, is like, I always wondered, I always thought drafting super flex at quarterbacks early in super flex made a ton of sense. Um, and so I looked at the data and I actually, I found some, some data that suggests that you can actually wait on the position. And I incorporated that into some startup drafts this off season and was able to, you know, essentially play, uh, basically play chicken with the league. And I identified like, um, you know, Stafford and who was on a really good track until he got hurt. Um, but Kirk Cousins and guys like this who have high end production, but get passed over by the market, uh, for whatever reason for the next big thing. Uh, and I actually value and historically that's been like those types of quarterbacks have really been, been good. And if you sort of look, there's a tear break from, you know, the first couple of rounds in Superflex historically, those are really high end producers. Like the market gets those right, but there's it's a it's a almost a flat tier from like round three to round eight in terms of wins over replacement and production and those sorts of stats. And so, if you're sort of willing to if you're willing to wait and willing to take some of the guys that um, are are uh, cheaper in the market, you can actually, uh, you can perform better and, and address other positions. Like you can pass on uh, quarterback early and address wide receiver where historically wide receiver, it's better to get wide receivers early than late. Um, I also did a lot of roster construction ideas. And, you know, one of the things I, I, I think is, uh, maybe misunderstood in dynasty is the value of wide receivers a lot of team, a lot of players and a lot of, uh, advice would say to load up on wide receivers, especially like later in your draft, because you'll protect your value. That's actually not true. Uh, wide receivers don't retain their value over running backs, uh, long-term late in the draft. And really the, every time you take a wide receiver outside of like, say the top 75 picks of a startup draft over a running back, every time you make that choice, you're losing value, uh, both in terms of production and in terms of uh, it, they don't protect their value 
long term. So I, you know, I, I identified a lot of those things, and I always wondered what the random future first round rookie pick was actually worth. And so I did some polling and stuff on Twitter just to see sort of what the market thought, and then tested it. And you know, those picks, you know, we see some crazy trades and stuff on Twitter at this time of year. People really vaulting up rookie picks, but generally speaking. I like when when you compare rookie picks to their production and and rookie picks their ADP to the veterans around the range they actually outproduce them especially at the running back position and so um, you know those things are all really valuable if you're willing to sort of look at it a different way and you know my data suggests there's plenty of value in the market still even though there's so much analysis on the on on the game. What are some of the more common mistakes you see people make in dynasty leagues? Um, I, I think recency bias is a huge deal. Um, and I think that, you know, we're looking at Lamar Jackson right now and Lamar Jackson's had a great season, uh, but you know, he's, he's touched on rates like 9%. And I looked a lot at, at the quarterback production of like uh, Q, the, the QB one finish. And, and it's, it's almost always the quarterback's best year. And you can expect like, just, just from a natural regression of the, the touchdown rate, which is, uh, it's it's highly uh, it's not very correlated year over year. So 2019's production isn't really going to say a whole lot about what 2020's touchdown rate is going to be. And if you think about scoring, particularly at receiver or at or at quarterback, it's such a huge part of of the scoring. Uh, and Lamar Jackson on like nine percent, it's just short of nine percent of his passes scored a touchdown. That's just a it's an unrepeatable trend. And so I think people taking you know you know. Lamar Jackson at QB one. I mean, there, there's a whole lot of risk in that, considering that this is probably the best we'll ever see of him, um, and he's just due for some natural regression. Um, so that's one of them. I also think the the thing with receivers over running backs. I mean, people fall in love with receivers in dynasty. Um, I actually, I mean, I in my rosters and and I did a lot of analysis in my in my book. And I actually did a whole bunch of simulations so you could go through and look at sort of what the value of each team was just by basically converting a running back to a receiver. So I did like a, a whole range of running back and receiver combinations. So I looked at teams that were really heavy at wide receiver and had like 12 wide receivers and four running backs. And then I sort of went the other way and I covered sort of the whole range. So um, every time that you sort of add a running back over a receiver in your startup draft and just sort of pick them randomly, you improve your, you improve your, your, both your upside and your floor. And you just sort of keep doing that, and people, um, you know, people will want to draft receivers because they think, oh, you can, you know, they're, they're long-term assets. Well, that's really not true outside the top seventy-five picks. Early in a draft, it is. Um, and if you're going to take a receiver over a running back, you should do it early in the draft because almost any time you take a running back, a receiver over a running back, you're going to lose your. You, you're expecting to lose value, but you you know you have to do it at some point. You got to take receivers. Um, early is the only time where it doesn't where it doesn't hurt as bad, right? And so later on, it really hurts. And if you and it adds up too. So if you you know if you have like three or four guys, like you know um, this year it was possible to get like uh, Mike Evans and Devontae Adams and and you know build a core around a, and a couple of other guys. Um, you know Jarvis Landry was a good value a little bit later on. A guy like Edelman you could get in. And if you sort of built it around those four guys, you're never not going to play them. And so you just sort of build a narrow wide receiver core and build a, build a huge volume at running back and you get a lot of weekly viability out of that strategy. So that's something that I found. I think, I think 
being receiver heavy is a mistake in dynasty. Um, and I think recency bias too. It's those two things. I mean, you can get a lot of value. I mean, you're going to look at a guy like Juju Smith-Schuster this year who's got a big track record of production this early in his career and people are going to be down on him because he had a bad 2019 season where he was hurt and his Hall of Fame quarterback was out. You know, I mean, if people are going to be down on that, you just have to buy. Yeah, I'm totally with you there. Um, do, you, do you think people tend to get suckered a little by draft capital? Like they're slaves to it and... I don't know. Is there a point at which you think you almost have to abandon draft capital as as some sort of measure? I mean, like if a guy isn't firing after, I don't know, a year and a half, two years, two and a half years where the draft capital just kind of has to go out the window. I mean, some people will like, you know, cling to hope with a guy who hasn't panned out just because he was a first round pick. That's a, that's a fantastic question. Um, and I... I looked at that because I wanted to know the answer to that. And so I, I have a, a chapter I call base rates and it's, it's answering exactly that question and basically looking at players who, Hey, you know, what, you know, second round running back hasn't hit through year two. What's his odds of hitting just sort of as a, just a, put a number on that. And then depending on who the player is, it'll move it, right? Like you might, you might think, um, you know, the player's better or worse than what you might expect. You might be high on their their potential or they might have been hurt and that might move it, right? But having a have an idea about the actual number that you should think about, I think it's 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 incredibly valuable. So I have a whole chapter looking at that that type of stuff. And um and it, it affects each position differently. And so I generally think that draft capital is a huge deal, and especially at quarterback, um, especially at tight end, um, and really at receiver too. Like the the pedigree as you go down, you get a lot less likely to hit. Um, what I found really interesting, and we've, we actually saw it this year, Devontae Parker is the first receiver drafted in this century to miss for the first four seasons, excuse me, first round one wide receiver. So first round one wide receiver to miss for four straight seasons out of, to start his career and hit in year five. No one's ever done it. The only two people that had, had done it in year four was actually uh, Peter Warwick and uh, Michael Crabtree. So we're talking a while ago. So guys like Corey Davis, that's that's not a good sign, right? That's not a good sign for him. Um, Will Fuller is a good example of that. Like you have to you have to start being worried about them actually hitting. Um, and so I, you know, I looked at that and that was sort of jaw dropping to me because I, I thought that it would be that you could just, you would keep buying because there would still be that viability there. But once you sort of get past year, year two and year three in some of these, in some of these positions, the rate really, really dwindles. I found it really interesting that the, as sort of like, if you look at your, you're like three and four for, um, for uh, day two wide receivers, they actually have a higher hit rate for the guys that haven't hit uh, than the round one guys. You know, round one guys actually fall off a cliff after year three in terms of what their expected, you know, hit rate is if they haven't hit. Whereas rounds two and three, they still maintain some of the value. It's not that high, but you look at guys like, and it makes sense because you see guys like Robert Woods or Golden Tate, where they sort of are late, are late producers on their rookie contracts they sign someplace else and go to a better situation sort of vault up uh that that story happens actually on day two more than it does on round one wide receivers for example and that was something that was really surprising to me and i wouldn't have i wouldn't have thought that going into the process 
Yeah, I wouldn't have imagined that either. And uh, Parker is definitely a unicorn. You know, I, it, it's funny. I was trying to think of other guys who had like missed, um, who looked that bad early in their careers and wound up being pretty good. And, and Crabtree was really kind of the first guy who came to mind. And I'm not sure how many years he struggled early in his career, but it, it certainly wasn't for as long as Parker had. Um, now, a lot of people are going to be launching dynasty startups in the months to come. Uh, when you're in a startup draft, Jordan, what is your general approach? Are you playing for year one and taking advantage of the discounts on older players? Or are you more focused on building a team with a lot of young, good young talent? Yeah. So I, I generally speaking, I'm, I'm not trying to compete in year one. And I think, so I'm, I'm willing to, you know, I'm a buyer of future rookie picks, but I wanted to see this. I actually, I was wondering, you know, about this and whether I was wrong. And cause I thought that there was a possibility, you know, there's some other people that have been really successful with building early out of the block. So I wanted to test it. So I actually went and I looked at, I, I had a sample of, uh, 2019 startup drafts and it was 25 leagues and i found that uh that the teams that actually traded and so i basically measured teams that were competing for you know year one as being teams that had traded away their first round rookie pick right their 2020 first round rookie pick and i just wanted to see how they did because i i suspected they did pretty well um and actually, I was surprised because only fifty-seven percent, just short of fifty-seven percent of them, made the playoffs. And when you sort of when you think about that, that's a that's a strikingly low number. When you compare it to the teams that didn't trade away their their first round rookie picks, made it fifty-two percent. So it didn't even it didn't even jump people five percent in terms of odds to make the playoffs. Which, when you think about that, is a that's a pretty alarming thing if you're going into it early, a, a startup draft, thinking I'm going to compete early. Um, when you look at like the top of the draft and you try and you'll see people and they'll try and do this thing where they'll get, you know, I'm going to take two running backs in the first round. I'm going to trade up into the first round of a startup. I'm going to take two running backs. Like the odds of that actually working out for a big, you know, a big year one is like less than 30%. And people don't appreciate that, that risk that's inherent in that strategy. Uh, especially if you're mortgaging your future to do it, it's just, it's a low odds bat and people don't, don't appreciate that. Um, Teams that traded away their their first round, excuse me, that that actually acquired first round rookie picks, so that they were in surplus leaving the draft. They had more than their share of of first round picks. Made the playoffs thirty percent of the time, which seems really low. But if you sort of look at that number and you think, well, those people typically aren't trying to compete in year one. They're drafting really young players. They're you know mortgaging sort of startup capital for future assets, but they still make it but three out of 10 of those teams make the playoffs. And I actually think that, and I, I called this the two-way go in my book, is I think there's a middle ground that you can do both. But you can try and trade basically down in a startup, accumulate some future assets. But at the same time, and I think it, I think it revolves around being very narrow at the wide receiver position. This might be the year to do it with some guys that have fallen in value like Juju. Um, he might be a core to this type of strategy. And, and some guys at running back and tight end that have fallen in value to try and target them and as, a, as almost a two-way go where you acquire future assets, but at the same time are trying to compete in year one. I actually, I think you can do it. Um, and whereas I, coming into writing the book, I thought that that was probably something that really wasn't all that possible. I know I, I tend to 
I'm kind of like you in startup dynasty drafts. I, I tend not to be very year one focused and I want to get that core of young talent, but I also want to be, I don't know. I want to be within striking distance in year two, I guess is, is sort of the way I approach it. But like, I feel like I have to get that core of, of young talent. So I know I'm not gonna, uh, you know, I'm going to be in good shape year two, year three and, and beyond, hopefully. Um, Jordan, I have to ask you about something you tweeted a few days ago. It's early in the new year and a lot of people are trying to adhere to their new year's resolutions. Some people are trying to go to the gym regularly. Some people are giving up alcohol for the month of January. And a lot of people are dieting, of course. Uh, I am one of those new year's dieters myself. I packed on a few eggnog and cookie pounds. Uh, but you, sir, you resolved to give up meat, poultry, and eggs or wait, meat, poultry, and dairy for the new year. Uh, what prompted you to make that radical New Year's resolution? Yeah, so I kind of, of like the things I've tweeted recently, like this was one of the bigger reactions. It was pretty, it was pretty funny. Um, I, and I'm a Bills fan, so there's no way I was giving up alcohol after after what happened this past weekend. So um, uh, it took a lot to get through that experience. Um, but uh, yeah, so I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm training to do a bike ride. Actually, uh, uh, one of my colleagues at work passed away and I'm going to do a uh, bike ride for charity in her, in her honor. Uh, and you know, it's, it's hard, you know, when you're overweight to carry, uh, a piano up a hill on a bike. And so I said, all right, I gotta get, I gotta get lighter. Uh, and you know, and my, my body was just hurting. And so I did some research and I said, you know, I eat cheese and pizza and, you know, all these things that I sort of just gorge myself on in the, in the holiday season. So let's cut back. And I don't, I didn't eat a lot of meat coming into, coming into this, but you know, I done some reading. I said, let's try and get some more anti-inflammatory foods in my diet. So yeah, a lot of fish, a lot of vegetables. I actually feel pretty good. Uh, and it's, you know, I haven't really lost any, it's five days in, I haven't really lost a lot of weight, but, uh, you just feel better and have some more natural energy. It's, it's, uh, it's pretty good. Of those three things, meat, poultry, and dairy, what is going to be the hardest to do without? Um, probably the dairy because like, I mean, I'm a, I'm a big, like, I, I can't pass up like a cake at work. You know, there's someone will, you know, someone had a birthday today and, you know, a couple of people brought in, you know, cake or, you know, these desserts that just have whipped cream and all the stuff on it. Like that's hard to pass up, but you know, I've, I've maintained my willpower through, you know, through a week. So we'll, we'll see how it goes. Yeah. I'm, uh, I'm from Wisconsin. So doing without the dairy is pretty tough and, and, doing without cheese. I mean, that's like, I've got, uh, melted cheddar coursing through my veins. So that is, uh, it's, it's a hard, (laughs) a hard thing to cut out of the diet. Um, all right, Jordan, back to fantasy football. And since we've been talking about dynasty, I I guess I want to take your temperature on the rookie class of 2020. Um, and as good as this rookie class appears to be, what sort of approach are you taking to, uh, specifically this year's first and second round draft picks in rookie drafts. Are you treating these picks as, as precious commodities that you'd be extremely reluctant to part with? Or do you think maybe people are getting too exuberant about this class and maybe this is a good opportunity to cash in early round picks in rookie drafts for established veteran talent? Yeah, at this at this point in the season, in this point in the rookie drafts, we don't know 
what's going to happen. I mean, in the drafts, what, four months away. So we, we've got a lot to happen. So I wouldn't make any big bets in terms of you know, thinking, hey, I need to get to 101 or I'm going to bail on the class. Or And honestly, for veterans, like there's so much that can happen between now and, and September. I don't make any big radical moves at this time of the year. Um, at this point, I'm, I'm sort of I, I'm in on this class. I'm a, I'm a fan of this class. I think it's going to be a, a good opportunity to really uh, hit hit the young players hard. Um, you know, I'm I'm overweight at at first round picks, so I I track you know my first and second round picks, and I I am at you know I think 1.75x of what I should be in first round picks. So um, I'm really looking to to hammer those uh, in terms of what um, I'm interested in. I mean, I, I, a lot of uh, draft capital is such a big deal uh, in terms of in terms of rookie drafts and and how to how to sort of put together a board and your odds and everything like that. I mean, it's just it's such a big deal in terms of your your production of players and the type of players that you're going to get. But I'm really looking at you know and something I I found in the analytics of dynasty when I wrote it in 2019 was the age of running backs and I mean 21 year old running backs that come into the NFL are just are a gold standard in terms of their density, in terms of their draft pedigree, in terms of how much they hit, you know, how they hit and how much they hit, all of those things. And so you're getting Etienne and Jonathan Taylor and you know uh DeAndre Swift and all these guys are going to play their 20 one-year-old seasons in the NF JK Dobbins. I mean, all of these guys are going to play at, at 21 years old, assuming all of them come out. Um, it's just, it's, it's a, it's a huge opportunity for, for dynasty teams to really make uh, uh, core running backs at, at, at a, at a really high age, at a, at a really young age with a high productivity. Um, and that's, that's a core of players that, 21-year-old running backs go a lot earlier in the draft than 22-year-old running backs do. It's like almost a round. And that, that that really jumped off the page to me. And we've actually seen it the past couple of years. We've seen two 21-year-old guys come in and be drafted higher than anyone expected. Carry on Johnson two years ago. And actually, no one really projected Alexander Madison to be a third-round pick last year. And that was surprising. I think to a lot of people that he snuck in and that's consistent with sort of the age thing. So I'm looking at, I'm really focusing on the 21 year old running backs, uh, what their cost is going to be. And I think it's interesting because, you know, and you're looking at some of these early mock drafts and some of these sites that aggregate, uh, you know, mock drafts to give you an idea of where players might be going. I think it's going to be a receiver heavy first round. And, and if, if that's true, you know, there's not a ton of demand early in the, early in the NFL draft for running backs, especially with some of the teams that are up there this year, if running backs are going to fall into round two, that's going to just create a ton of value in rookie drafts for, for these running backs, especially if there's five receivers going in the first round, like, like some sites are projecting. I mean, that's just going to create a lot of value in the later half of the first round of rookie drafts. It's going to be a really good year for rookie picks. Right. And um, I mean, it's almost inconceivable to think that, what maybe one of Swift, Taylor, ATN, and Dobbins could fall as far as the third round. But I mean, it could happen. Just, um, you know, I, I know a lot of the mocks might have one or zero of these running backs going in the first. I think the second is probably going to be the sweet spot for, for most of those four, but it's possible not all four go. And, um, you know, they're definitely going to be, I think, three or four or five 
wide receivers going in the first. Um, Which guys particularly are you most excited about? Is it any of these four running backs? Do you, have you ordered these guys yet at all, or are you kind of waiting for the pre-draft process to play out? Yeah, I just with finishing the 2019 season and writing the book, I haven't d- dove full on into the the class. Um, but I mean, at the, there's just there's I mean, I think for me right now, Swift and uh, Taylor are probably the two top guys. But um, I, you know, J.K. Dobbins was a guy I watched in college a couple of years ago, and I was like. Ah. I, I'm not a huge. I wasn't a huge fan. I thought he was, you know, I, I thought he had some flaws, and I was really impressed down the stretch how how much bigger he had gotten and stronger he had gotten, and how complete of a player he was. Considering I hadn't really tracked him, you know, it's, I don't watch a ton of college football just because I, it's there's just so much pro football that I have to, um, you know, do and and those sorts of things. It's just it's just a question of time, but. Dobbins is a guy that really jumped off the page. And if he's going to be a running back, I mean, in a normal year, I mean, he, he's going to be a, a running back one, running back two type of profile. Um, you know, you just think of where he would have gone this this 2019 draft um, and he could be running back four, five, six. I mean, that's that's uh, that's just a screaming value. For, for dynasty leagues in general, what is your favorite format, Jordan? Like what, how many teams... Uh, single QB or super flex, how many roster spots, how many starters, how do you like to play dynasty? I like to play as deep as I can go. So I like, I like bigger, um, I like bigger, I like to play deeper rosters, deeper lineups and less starting minimums. So, you know, these hyperactive formats where you just can start one quarterback, one wide receiver, uh, one running back, one tight end, and a whole bunch of flex positions, and you had a super flex in there or whatnot. Uh, I really like that because I am my strategy is as so much different, and it's I like the ability to sort of put in to play, you know, starting as many running backs as I possibly can and rostering as many running backs as I possibly can. I mean, I did a startup in that format last summer and I rostered, I think I rostered leaving the draft 19 running backs and only five receivers. Um, and I only needed to start one receiver. Um, and you know, things didn't really actually break that well for me in terms of the, some of the guys I had, I just, my entire portfolio of dynasty players was just ransacked by injuries this year. It was, it was, it was pretty comedic, but um, you know, I, I'm I like those leagues where you have the ability to sort of uh, you know pick a pick a strategy, and um, especially the deep leagues with where you can do it over you know twenty eight, thirty, thirty five man rosters, where you can sort of where you think you have an edge, and you can just sort of keep maximizing it. I'm a really big fan of those, and and when you have deeper rosters and deeper lineups, I, I really like that. I'm with you, man. I love that flexibility. I, I love when, you know, you're filling out your starting lineup and you go to wide receiver and it's, uh, you know, can start three to seven and you're like, hmm, okay. Uh, you know, what do the buys look like? What are the injuries like? Cause I mean, sort of the weekly, I don't know, the weekly obstacles you face during the regular season with those, you know, a wave of injuries or, you know, week eight and you're hitting multiple bye weeks like it's it's some weeks you can throw out those seven receivers and feel good about it other weeks like okay i've, I've got these three or four bodies left standing um so yeah it's it's nice to have that flexibility where you can sort of toggle between the numbers at running back tight end receiver um are there any rules for dynasty leagues that you just absolutely hate 
that you see in, in certain leagues? Yeah, I, I really dislike the league that forces you to pay uh, once you trade your pick, right? So like if you're, if, you know, it's 2019 and, and you're trying to trade with someone and they're like, oh, I don't want to, I don't want to trade because I have to pay for the pick. Like that, that is just, like you could you could make a good deal, but you're sort of hamstrung by the rules. Um, I would just rather you pay basically when you start, you play, uh, you pay for two years, and then each year you sign up, you're paying for the year after, and then you can you have all the picks to make or you have all the picks to trade because you paid ahead. You don't have to worry about someone you know shipping off all their assets and tank their team and not be able to fill an orphan. So I like that, and I think it it sort of. Uh, it sort of creates a, uh, a longer culture to the league. Um, and just, uh, you know, when, when you're invested for more, you know, for past the year that you're in uh, and you have the ability to make trades whenever you want, I, I just, I like that over needing to pay for, uh, you know, to, to pick up a second round pick from a team. That just, that, that just, it's infuriating. Yeah, I'm with you. And I, I, I get it in certain leagues, especially where it's, uh, you know, a lot of people who aren't close, like in friends leagues, I think you tend not to see that rule as often, but in leagues where it's, you know, a lot of people who don't know each other that well, I suppose it's a safeguard, but I like your idea of paying sort of, uh, an extra year ahead. Um, are there any dynasty leagues you're in with rules that you might recommend for commissioners of other leagues, like things that really work for your dynasty leagues? I think adding, you know, adding more flexibility, I'll always, I'll always like adding more flexibility. So more roster spots, more uh, ability to flex different players. And I think it gives a better, a better chance to identify good strategies. And I liked, I like seeing the different interplays of strategies. And when you, when you create um, you know, I, I like playing in start two tight end leagues, right? Because you, you, it forces you to go deep and it forces you to think more and more about different positions and um, super flex. And I love start mandatory start two QB leagues because it forces you to study and look at different players that, in a position we don't normally value. Um, just from a role play perspective, I would love to play in a league that has uh you basically get the you know if you draw a defensive pass interference you get a point and you get the yardage basically make it you know create it like a catch in ppr because you know you see these things happen in the nfl and you know deandre hopkins draws a 45 yard defensive pass interference and it's like ah, that would have been <laughs> that would have been a huge opportunity for my team but you get nothing out of it um whereas it's a huge value in the nfl so i'd love to see that role in place yeah, we might see that coming up soon, like where, uh, I don't know, fantasy owners get half the yardage for a pass interference penalty or something like that. But I've seen enough enough sentiment on Twitter uh, that would favor a rule like that. Um, Jordan, let's talk about something you tweeted a couple of weeks ago. You said that Lamar Jackson and Ryan Tannehill stood out as easy sell highs this offseason and that Baker Mayfield and Jared Goff look like uh, pretty obvious by lows. Um, I mean, let's start with the two guys you mentioned as sell highs. Now we talked about Jackson a little bit and that uh, in all likelihood, unsustainable uh, touchdown rates. But um, I don't know. I, aside from that, Michael Salfino of the athletic was on this podcast a few months ago and he expressed serious doubts about whether Jackson has what he called a sustainable business model. And uh, 
you know, I, I guess with that, he means the, the run heavy approach, uh, a guy who, who's derives that much of his value from his legs. Like, do you think, is that part of it with you too? Or is it mainly about more about touchdown rate? I think it's a combination of both. Um, and don't get me wrong. Like he's a great player. Um, but when you, so much of dynasty value tends to be based off the prior year. And that is, it's good in some places and not great in others. And when you are, when the market is really, really high at a player that scored a ton of touchdowns, right. And scored it at an unsustainable rate. That's just a clear fade. Um, and I looked in the book a lot at the guys that, you know, the type of regression that happens and on average since 2000, since 2000, right. If you, if you kept the, uh, the quarterback one, you know, with the same passing attempts the next year and you just, you just controlled for the touchdown rate, they would lose 12 touchdowns. Right. And when you, when you think about that, like I, I look at that just in terms of how many wins that is over a 13 game, you know, I, I use my warp data for a regular season fantasy league. Um, so it, it's 0.6 less wins, right? That's a, that's a big difference in terms of, I mean, that's, that's over half a game. And that is a, it's just a big difference in terms of, uh, what a player's production is. I mean, that's, it's, it's just a, it's a big, big difference. And that's not a stat that's well controlled by quarterbacks year over year. Uh, Tannehill is the same way. I mean, we know sort of what Tannehill's base rate is as a quarterback, and it's not a seven point five touchdown percentage. Right? That's just not. That's just not who he is. On the flip side, you look at guys like uh, Jared Goff, who he has a three point three touchdown. Uh, 3.3% of his passes went for touchdowns. That's just, re- that's incredibly low. Um, and it's just a screaming buy opportunity, especially given his track record. You know, he has a top six finish under his belt. Um, he, you know, we, we have seen him play in a good offense with good weapons, with a good coach. Uh, this year just seems like it's just a, 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 a bad variance type of year. I'm willing to bet pretty heavily that he's going to bounce back. Um, Baker Mayfield is, I think, and I wrote about this, this was the easiest mistake to ever avoid. And I didn't realize it. You know, I didn't write the Superflex chapter until the office, until you know, a couple months ago. And when I was really diving into the data, Baker Mayfield is like the, as quarterback four last year in Dynasty, which he ended up being throughout the, the course of the year. Uh, that's just, it's a, it's just one of the more easy avoid things to happen. Um, you just, you can't make that mistake in terms of the short sample size, in terms of he had not done it for a top 12 season. Um, he had not done it for a top six season. And you're sort of betting over guys that have like Dak Prescott was a really good example of this. So you're, you're betting on, on, on a guy with very minimal production. Um, and you're betting such a high, especially in Superflex. You're betting a second round startup pick. You ha- you can't miss with that pick, and you're betting it on a guy who who hadn't really. And I was a, I was a Baker supporter, but when I look at the numbers, like that's just a clear mistake in terms of in terms of his profile. Um, with that said, I think now he's going to be a he's going to be you know we're basing it all off what happened this past year. He's going to be uh, you know if he's going in the, the the early teens at the quarterback position, I think that's a pretty palatable cost. Well, you mentioned the mistake of recency bias, and I think that was kind of it with Mayfield, that he looked so good late in 2018 that people just, you know, he he left that impression going into that offseason, and like that just sort of drove up the value, and people didn't, you know, 
I don't know, I, I guess people were blind to the fact that it was a relatively small sample size. And um, the other thing, though, I mean, in fairness to Mayfield, like he did face a pretty murderous schedule this year as far as pass defenses. He was getting no help from Freddie Kitchens. Uh, you know, he wasn't making things any easier for the young quarterback. Um, you know, a, a lot of factors here yet to play out. But I, I understand your belief that he's a pretty good buy low, you know, with uh, after just the colossal failure of this team. And, and you know, even though we don't know where Odell Beckham is going to be, if he's going to be back in Cleveland, who's going to coach the team. But, uh, you know, still a lot of reason for optimism here, I think. And I, I want to be with you on Goff. And I think you have uh, a good point about that. But it's, it's kind of interesting to me that like he's been almost at the mercy of his offensive line the last two years. I mean, it was so good in 2018 and this year it was kind of trash and, and decayed quite a bit and it seemed like it cost him. So, um, and just like, I wonder if that team has the resources to be able to rebuild that offensive line effectively. Um, but yeah, he is, he's definitely kind of a hard guy to peg. I'm, I'm probably going to take like a middle of the road view of Goff, And I, I don't think I have him on any of my dynasty teams. And, you know, I don't know if I'm going to chase him, but if anyone is fire selling him, I might be interested. Uh, let's talk about a few other players before I let you go, Jordan. Um, how discouraged are you by David Montgomery's rookie year? Yeah, that's a, that's a good question. I, I was never a fan of David Montgomery coming into the season. Uh, I just I watched his tape in, in Iowa State, and I just said, "This is a guy that just can't like he just can't move in terms of he's just not fast, and he just gets tracked down." And I get that he's powerful and he runs with balance and all those all of the things, but I just said he he's just not the type of player that's going to produce well um, in the NFL just because I don't I don't think he can really make consistently make you know, plays and. I cover the uh, Chicago Bears for football guys as I do all the recaps. And I, I just, I watched him every week and it was just like, it was just constantly getting dragged down. Just, he doesn't, he, he runs pretty smooth between the tackles and, and does all those things and bounces off players and all that stuff. But I mean, there was, there was, uh, multiple times a season where he had the edge to get a touchdown and get you dragged down by a defensive lineman. Like you just, that's just a, that's just a really bad thing to, to consistently see out of a player. Um, and, but he, he did get, you know, he, he finished with a, a relatively, you know, it's funny he, he finishes as what in like the top 25 in PPR scoring and people are disappointed. And, you know, it's, it's funny. You see, dynasty owners draft early in rookie drafts thinking oh immediate production and and honestly get it to some degree and they're disappointed um i looked at him and i just said you know in in my book i i was able to go through and look at you know what what the the draft pedigree is for uh, players in different ranges of the draft. So I break it down into the top three picks of a rookie draft historically going back to 2008. Uh, and this is non-super flex, but 2008 to basically 2018 uh, and just sort of see what their what their rookie draft pedigree looks like. Um, and he was consistently in the top three picks. Uh, I think he just finished just outside of that in ADP. But you look at you know picks four through six, that's the 41.8 overall pick. 
to give you an idea, the back half of the first round, which I just categorized as picks seven through 12, 69.75. He didn't even, he's a below average first round running back in terms of rookie drafts. And people were spending, you know, 102, 103 on him. I just, I could never get on board with that. And uh, this class, like when you look at it, the the early parts of the the 2019 class were, were it was bad at the top, but it was actually pretty good through round like round two, like there was a lot of players in round two that were actually above average pedigree guys. But the problem was that they were just vaulted up so high. You look at this class, like Montgomery probably wouldn't even sniff the first round in terms of talent. And I just, it's, I just think, you know, last year it was such an easy play for me to trade out of those early picks because every year it's, it's funny. Every year we see the same things where people take put, positional situation guys early and then it's just a classic opportunity where you can just say listen i don't like the player it's fine to avoid them and just trade down there's usually a buyer for them and you just have to identify um that's the one thing like from year over year if you consistently you know aren't reaching on players historically you'll get a better crack the next year and that's that's a lot of what i wrote about i wrote a whole chapter on the 2019 rookie draft class because i thought it was so instructive about how to play dynasty and montgomery was a big avoid player with the late season surge we saw from AJ Brown, do you think he is a top five uh, dynasty value wide receiver? Um, I, top five's rich for me in terms of uh, you know here's you know you want to talk about touchdown rate and those sorts of things, right? He's a player that you have to have a lot of concern about um, in terms of those types of things. You know, one thing I look a lot at is the the uh, points per target of a player. And that's a stat that's not typically... Uh, it's it's very variant from year to year. It, it, it doesn't correlate well year over year. So guys that typically score high in one year um, tend to see regression the next year. It's not something that, that receivers are particularly good at controlling. Um, and he was over two and a half points per target. That's almost a, a full point over the average uh, target in the NFL. And that's just something you you just can't really continue to see year over year. Um, eight touchdowns on 84 targets. I mean, ta- again, there's that's just a almost a 10% touchdown rate. I mean, those things you just can't continue to bet on. Now, happening at that rate. Now the question is, is does he see a rise in targets? He was only targeted 84 times um, in 16 games. Does that, that needs to rise a lot. You know, that needs to go up 50, 60 targets for him to really consistently be uh, a high end wide receiver. And I don't know in that offense, if that's, if they're capable of doing that in terms of volume and, and uh, who's their quarterback. And I just have a lot more questions about that. He had a great season, but I don't know how predictive it is of, uh, of, of future that type of rate stat production uh, happening. So if you look at top five, I mean, it's hard to crack for me in terms of, I mean, I could see him in the top, I could see him in the top, 15, I could see him making an argument in the top 10, um, but in the top five, there's just too many guys that have sustained success um, better than he has and that I just can't, I can't justify that. Speaking of rookie receivers, who would you rather have for Dynasty, uh, DK Metcalf or Terry McLaurin? Yeah, it's so I was looking at this and I, I thought, you know, I, I looked a lot at, at the, you know, the, the basically some threshold tests and 
if you if wide receivers hit for a top thirty six season, um, both round two and round three receivers in their rookie season, they produce a top twenty four season. They have produced a top twenty four season one hundred percent of the time. So you have a good you have a good baseline of of projection. I would probably rather have the guy attached to the the really good quarterback. Um, I have questions about Washington's everything essentially in terms of what they're doing um you know their whole organization i'll bet on the guy attached to russell wilson give me dk metcalf yeah that makes sense and uh maybe that would have been a more interesting question before this past weekend's uh results i suppose um we talked about juju smith schuster uh after the difficult season as as a potential buy low i mean where would you slot him like where should he go in a dynasty startup I've seen some people bailing on him and you know this is all off a down season again his his just look at the change that's happened there in the past what 24 to 36 months they lose Antonio they lose Antonio Brown they lose Le'Veon Bell and their Hall of Fame quarterback gets hurt and they're starting a Mason Rudolph who gets benched for a guy that was an undrafted free agent then they're toggling back and forth between the two in the meantime Juju Smith-Schuster is hurt and their whole offense just it, it was i mean i don't know how much pittsburgh you watch but it was it was a tough watch at times on offense like they had a good defense but it was just tough to watch and you know he only plays 12 games he was hobbling through a lot of that time i i just think this is a down season in terms of these sometimes these things happen and this was basically the worst of the worst combination of of bad luck injuries uh and and you know uh, the players around him quarterback in particular being not not the best quarterbacks, you know, his quarterback getting hurt, all of those things just, it points to me to be just a a fluke down season. Uh, I'm pretty high on him. And I mean, he was, he was really good from, from the age of 18 at USC. I mean, he's a good receiver. It's just, I think this is just a down year. Yeah. Here's how much perceptions on him, I think are going to vary. And this is uh, like, there's some people doing their early redraft rankings for next year. And, uh, you know, I've, I've been going through mine and I still have him like top 10. I think I've got him nine or 10 for next year. And someone who I really respect, I was looking at their rankings and they had Juju 26 wide receiver, 26 for next year. And, you know, I mean, his, like you said, his quarterback gets hurt, he gets hurt. And, uh, you know, I don't even really care about the absence of bell or, or Antonio. Like, I just think those are the two things. Like it's, it's the season was just a wipeout. You know, and after what he did his first couple of years, I mean, that's just prolific production at such a tender age. I mean, that is no fluke. And, you know, I think he's going to be back with a vengeance. All right. Last thing, Jordan, do you have any favorite buy low targets this offseason? One or two guys you're trying to sneakily acquire in multiple leagues over the next few months? I mean, you just named one in Juju, right? I mean, if that's going to be the conversation around him, I'm, I'm going to be really bullish. Um, another player that I think has just been dealt a, a pretty crummy hand, but I really, really like the, the production that he did, and I cu- I see him weekly as Allen Robinson. Uh, I mean, he is just, he is, uh, just consistently the best receiver on the field and and when he plays i mean he is just so good and 
uh, their offense is just uh, Mitchell Trubisky is just pretty, pretty fledgling at the at the position. Uh, but he is it was consistent. I mean, he was dominant this year in terms of just uncoverable at times. And Trubisky just was, you know, all sorts of bouncing the ball to him. I mean, it was just a it was a comical watch at times. I mean, that was just. Um, yeah, so he's one. He's one. Um, Brandon Cook seems like a pretty good value to me in terms of. I mean, he might go in the twenties or thirties. I mean, you, uh, you know, talk about a down season with Juju. I mean, similar with with Brandon Cooks. I think just everything went bad in the Rams' offense. I'm willing to. I'm willing to bet on that um, bouncing back and just. Brandon Cooks' production. I mean, he had four straight seasons of top fifteen production. I, I think he's more of that player than he was than what happened this year. Um, at the tight end position, too. One thing I've I consistently see, and I don't think that we, I don't think we necessarily grasp yet, which is the loss of uh, of Gronkowski and uh, Gates and Gonzalez, and now we're seeing you know Witten's in the twilight of his career after sitting out last year, and Graham the same way. But there's so much tight end production that we're missing in terms of what what our standard baseline was. I mean, those guys were just consistently uh, top twelve tight ends like year over year. Uh, I think they had about 30% of, I have it in the book, it's about 30% of the top 12 seasons from 2010 through 2018 were just those five guys. And now we're in an era where that's not happening. I mean, Kelsey's consistently dominant, but we're seeing different types of stories come to fruition at tight end. You see a guy like Jared Cook, consist, you know, two top 10 seasons in a row. Um, you know, you see uh, guys like Higby come on late, and Gasicki has this uh, this really you know bad start to his career, and then comes on and finishes his tight end twelve. Um, there's all these different stories, but I think the, one of the the clear ones is going to be the tight end pedigree, um, especially in super in um, in dynasty drafts. I mean Ingram and Howard and Joku, all three of those guys. I mean, they could, I thought the, I did a bunch of startups last year and I thought the tight end position was really efficient in terms of, I didn't think there was great values, maybe outside of like Mark Andrews in terms of like where he was going, but the, the market had it really right in terms of they were valuing pedigree high and there weren't any really pedigree outliers in terms of these guys. This year, I think it's going to be all over the place with guys like Howard and Ebron still in his mid-20s and um, Joku off a disappointing year where he's basically got benched. And I mean, I think there's a lot of reclamation projects at tight end that are possible. I mean, Hawkinson flashed at the beginning of the season, but miss time and um you know all i think there's a lot of those types of stories at tight end that i'm really really interested in so as a class i'm gonna go with just depressed asset tight ends yeah and one of those for me i think might be gerald Everett, just with the late higby resurgence like it wouldn't surprise me at all if if like a team like the patriots or the packers um you know a team that needed a tight end went after everett and and you know if, tried to see if the Rams would take like a fourth rounder for him or something like that. Cause you know, I, I just like with, with Higby's explosion at the end of the season, I don't think like the Rams can put that genie back in the bottle. So I think Everett might be expendable. And, and this is a guy who I, I believe was the first draft pick of uh, the Sean McVay era. So um, yeah, I mean, you mentioned that pedigree and especially since guys like Njoku Angram have had these injury issues and really haven't, uh, you know, 
the, the talent hasn't been allowed to fully percolate yet. And obviously OJ Howard with sort of, uh, you know, the combination of maybe system and uh, whatever other obstacles he's got there. So yeah, I mean, those guys are really interesting dynasty propositions. Uh, well, Jordan, this has been great. Before I let you go, uh, why don't you give everyone the elevator pitch for your book one more time and uh, you know why should they get it? How can they get it? And how much is it selling for? Yeah. So you can get the book at analyticsofdynasty.com slash shop. Um, I have the 2020 edition available for presale now. It's $30. Um, a lot of the things that we talked about, like uh, it's, and it's funny, like I didn't tell you sort of what the, what a lot of the topics were before, you, you know, you brought up what the questions were going to be. And it's, it's just, it's funny how I, they were just so on point with what I studied and what I, what I looked at and sort of have an understanding of based on the book. And I think that's what you'll get out of the book. You'll get an, you'll get the idea of, you know, what does it mean that a guy uh, like OJ Howard has missed for uh, this at the start of his career? What's his hit rate turn into, you know, what, and that gives you an idea of, of a lot of those different types of concepts. And, and we, you know, all these players have similar backstories in terms of players that have done similar things in the past. And we can use a lot of that to to look at going forward. And so that's a lot of it. And there's a lot of different strategies. I mean, I think there's a lot of value in the market if you're willing to do different things. And if you're willing to look at different types of players, different types of strategies, different types of construction, I lay a lot of those things out. I think there's a lot of value in it. Um, so you can get the book. It's $30. While, uh, while the pre-sale is going on, I also opened up the uh, 2019 edition which gives a, a lot of overview. It gives a lot of uh, startup analysis, rookie draft analysis, team building ideas that I wrote in 2019. There's a lot on age in there um, and different types of ways to measure production, my warp and AWARP analysis, all of those things. Um, that's in the 2019 edition. I'm selling that for $20. Uh, you can get that at analyticsofdynasty.com slash shop. And in the meantime, you can go to my Patreon channel. It's patreon.com slash analyticsofdynasty. Um, I've got a, a, a range of... Uh, tiers you can join. Um, I've been doing podcasts. It's funny, like almost every day since I've done it, I've been like, oh, I'll just record something and I can put it up and, you know, my subscribers can get it that, uh, instantly. And there's just been so much happening. It's, it's just, uh, it's a good time for Dynasty and it's a good time to check that out. And I have a uh, patron chat where we're in group me and we talk, you know, consistently. A couple of my people are in startup drafts right now. So we're talking about that. And it's, you know, early January. So uh, there's a lot of fun things that are going on. Yeah. Dynasty is definitely the three dimensional chess of fantasy football. And uh, it sounds like your book has a lot of great stuff to help people navigate this, uh, you know, tactically challenging version of fantasy. So, um, and once again, you can find Jordan McNamara on Twitter at McNamara Dynasty. Jordan, great talking to you. And uh, thanks again for coming on. Pat, thanks so much for having me. I really appreciate it. All right, everyone. That is a wrap on what has been a pretty long episode of Fits on Fantasy. I want to thank my guest once again, Jordan McNamara. Find him on Twitter at McNamara Dynasty. And of course, I have to thank my great producer, Mr. Colm Kelly, for putting this show together. You can find him on Twitter at Overtime Ireland. Special thanks, of course, to my partner in crime, the football girl, uh, Melissa Jacobs. You can find her on Twitter at the football girl. And of course, check out her site where you'll also find my content, thefootballgirl.com. 
And of course, thanks to all of you for tuning in. And uh, please, if, if you're so moved, I would urge you to rate and review this podcast, which helps out considerably. Um, and I think that's it for this week, folks. I will be back again next week with another great guest. Really appreciate uh, you for lending me your ear and tuning in. And uh, for now, I will say so long, and we will talk to you again soon. Shohei Otani hits, pitches, and trades crypto. He does it all on the platform that trades it all. FTX, the official crypto exchange of MLB. But you don't have to be a pro to trade like one. Just download the FTX app and you could be trading crypto, NFTs, and more in minutes. FTX, Shohei's in, are you?